there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, a company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Welcome back. We are officially not going to say welcome to Books with Hooks because our two segments have now officially merged. So by now, you know the format. We have a wonderful guest with us who's looking at your query letter and opening pages and Carly and Cece will look at them as well. And then we discuss our guest's work. And in today's instance, we're also going to be discussing social media because that's something that we always get a lot of questions on. So Today's guest, Sarah DeVello, is a mystery writer and the creator host of Mystery and Thriller Mavens, a popular author series. Her next book, Broadway Butterfly, a thriller, comes out on the 1st of August this year. For her Maven series, Sarah has interviewed more than 300 authors, ranging from the best-selling and world-renowned guests like Dean Koontz, Patricia Cornwell, Walter Mosley, Lee Child, etc., to the buzziest of debuts. Sarah loves connecting with fellow mystery lovers on her social media platforms. She also serves as the Director of Social Media Strategy for the International Thriller Writers Association. Her articles have been published in Marie Claire, Elle, Red Book, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Day, among others. In her spare time, she loves to teach yoga, cook, and eat, garden, and go for leisurely walks with her husband and their beloved rescue mat, Pelu. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm thrilled to be here. 
We're absolutely thrilled to have Sarah. So we're going to be picking her brain about social media, but we also want to discuss Broadway Butterfly, which will be coming out in August. So something that was really interesting, besides the mini POV characters that we get in this book, I want to read you the author's note. So Broadway Butterfly chronicles a true crime that gripped the nation in 1923. So we're dealing with 100 years ago here, people. So definitely historical fiction, not like when we talk about the 90s and people get depressed when we call that historical fiction. I carefully researched this case for several years, she says in her author's note, interviewing professors, police officers, and other subject matter experts while amassing over 1,500 distinct pieces of research. My intention in writing this book is to honor the truth of the story and the very real people involved. An essential part of the telling of the story required, including the racism, sexism, ethnic prejudice, socioeconomic power dynamics, and corruption of the time, including the offensive attitudes and language of the time. These in no way reflect my own beliefs or moral values. So this is a two-parter, Sarah. Can you please just tell us why the story captured your imagination and then also you know the 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 disclaimer that you're including in the author's note yes so first of all i love history i minored in history and i love everything about it and i also think that it remains relevant because if we don't look at where we've come from we're never going to change where we're going and one of the really important things in telling the story to me was how very much has changed in 100 years and how absolutely nothing has changed in 100 years. And I think we need to be looking at that and valuing history more. And there's, I think, a really dangerous trend right now in not wanting to look backwards. And I felt that that was important to me to tell. So as to the second part of your question, this is really important that we have this conversation and that we noodle through these things together. So for me, it's a two-part answer. So first of all, I worked on this book for nine years. Now, as a white woman writing a black character, I wanted to handle that with incredible care and incredible concern. And I wrestled a lot with, do I have the right to tell this story? Am I the right person to tell the story? And inclusion and diversity have always been incredibly important to me. And I think we're having a really important cultural conversation about that right now, especially since 2020. It might, I tell the story through four POVs. One is Black. As a white woman, that is something that I wanted to approach with, with incredible care. So the way that I did that was first to ask myself, Am I the right person to tell the story? Do I have the right to tell the story? Should I tell the story? And because my story is true and not a novel, I had the choice of either A, including Ella, which meant I as a white woman would write a black woman, or B, excluding Ella. And so because I didn't want to exclude her when she's such an important part of the story, a vital and important part of the story, my only choice was to include her, which meant that I as a white woman would write a black woman. So now that I had made that choice, I had to undertake the work and the care to create her as a full-bodied, incredible character which is reflective of the full-bodied, incredible human being that she was. So the way that I did that was to work with Dr. Bernadine Nash-McClam on the creation of her, and then to hire a sensitivity reader, as well as my publisher hired their own sensitivity reader on their own dime. And that's the advice that I would offer to others, who other white writers who want to write diverse characters. 
Number one, do the work. Roll up your sleeves, get in the trenches, and do the freaking work. Number two, listen to Black authors or uh, Black experts, Black readers, authors of color, readers of color. You know, never think that your imagination is better than their knowledge or lived experience. Be humble, be vulnerable, be malleable. Say, this is hard and I want to get it right. And I think that that care and that intention and that work is the only way that we can get it right. The reason that I wanted to include the author's note was actually from, was feedback that I had gotten from Wanda Morris, who's another incredible Black author that I had interviewed on Maybe Even Series, then I actually work with at ITW. Her series, her first book, All Her Little Secrets, was just adopted by Showtime with Uzo Adobo headlining. I can't wait. I'm a huge Uzo Adobo fan. Back to Orange is the New Black Days. And she had said that she who is a Black writer writing about Black characters, had chosen to put an author's note in her book because when you let people know this is what you can expect, it allows us to put an awareness and almost an armor over our tender, vulnerable human hearts that says we may read hard things and that's okay, but it allows us to sort of prepare. Whereas if you don't, if you just send people in without that warning, it can really take someone aback. And number one, I really don't want to take anyone aback. So that was my choice and that was my process. Wonderful, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, you know, all that to say that these are choices that we as authors have to make. There is no right answer. There are many, many wrong answers. But certainly, you know, like Sarah says, it's a lot you need to consider when you're coming at that. And it cannot be entered into lightly. There is another great article on the History Quill, Five Tips for Writing Inclusive Historical Fiction. It's written by Kate Morrison. In that article, she references other articles as well. So for those of you who are you know, interested in the subject, please look at that as well and look at the many articles she links to there as well. All right, so we're going to start off now with Cece's query letter. Will we dive in and will you read that for us? There's a little note before the query letter, so I will read that too. Dear Bianca, Cece and Carly, thank you for making the world a better place for new authors like me. I am submitting my work to be critiqued by Cece because she lists fantasy on her manuscript wish list and always has fantastic insights. However, I sincerely hope that it is all right that my query letter is targeted at a different agent. As an avid listener of the podcast, fantasy romance does not strike me as Cece's taste, although of course I could be wrong. Many thanks, redacted. So now to the query letter. Dear agent, I was delighted to read that we share the same favorite book, Daughter of the Forest. Juliet Mariler is my hero for creating stories with beauty and heart. My own adult fantasy romance novel, Altar of Stars, will appeal to Mariler's fans. At 100,000 words and told in multi-POV, Altar of Stars combines the lush prose and emotional resonance of Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik with the romantic tension of A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. Spirited Lyrin wants to make her own choices, but she feels trapped. Not only must she conceal her son magic to keep her megalomaniac father from discovering her existence, but she's also betrothed in a political alliance with the passionate and sociopathic Midnight King, Callan. When she falls into forbidden love with her protector, Emeris of Ashenfall, she is torn between duty and impossible dreams. When her sister disappears, Liren resolves to embrace her illicit magic to uncover the web of kidnappings and corruption leading to her sister. 
Secretly training with Callan to hone her sunlight into a deadly weapon, Liren discovers an unexpected and fiery attraction to the Midnight King. With Amiris and Callan at each other's throats, Liren must forge a path to save both her sister and her heart, even if it means confronting her own identity and facing execution beneath the High Queen's Crimson Blade. As a professional artist, I've exhibited my paintings in many solo and group shows, as well as traveled and created artwork nationally and internationally in 13 different countries, from the Alhambra in Granada to the Summer Palace in Beijing. A lifetime of bringing beauty to the canvas informs the lyrical, immersive setting in Altar of Stars. Thank you for your time and consideration. Can I send you my manuscript? Sincerely, Redacted. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? I will begin by saying that the first line is quite specific, right? Like, this is your favorite book. This is my favorite book too. So I'm assuming that this is for one specific agent. And if so, brava, amazing. That's super awesome. And if not, obviously don't, don't do that. But I feel like that's a fair assumption. I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you the word count. The word count is 302 words. When it comes to the plot paragraphs, this is really well written. I know exactly what's happening in the story. I understand how the tension escalates. I understand what the major dramatic question is. I do think a few things can be tweaked. So for example, the second plot paragraph can be, when her sister disappears, Liren resolves to embrace her illicit magic. It just gives it a little bit more of a forward momentum. It's such a minor tweak. I did that for you, so you'll be able to see that. I was not expecting her to fall for the Midnight King. I thought that he totally sucked, and I'm saying this in a good way. Like, I liked being surprised. I was like, oh, okay. So then, you know, she changes her mind. There's going to be a triangle. That's exciting. I will say that there could be a clause added. First plot paragraph, to keep her megalomaniac father from discovering her existence. After the but, maybe there could be something like to protect her family or to further her family's status. Since at the end of the plot paragraph, we do hear that she's torn between duty and love, but we're not clear on who the duty is for, right? Like maybe I get that her sister disappears, but this is happening before that disappearance. So I guess my question is, is it to honor her family's status? Is it to elevate her family's status? Is it to like, what, what exactly is her duty to? And that's like a really easy fix. Probably all you only need like five words. But yeah, this was really awesome. And I'm not to get ahead of myself, but this promised lyrical and immersive setting and it delivered. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to fall in love with the Midnight King. I go to bed at 9 p.m. We're just going to keep missing each other. Awesome, Cece. Okay, so what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? So we have our protagonist looking at her bride marks. These are tattoos because she's bride marked. And she's with her friends and they're having a conversation about where her family is. And she's thinking to herself that, you know, she really misses her family. She's imagining where her family might be. And her friends are saying, when, when your father arrives for your coming of age, we must celebrate. And in her head, she's thinking turning 21 and becoming old enough to be sold is not something to celebrate, but she's not sharing this, right? Like this is just her interiority. There's a disruption, which is that someone shows up in the woods and, you know, this is not a situation where people usually show up. They usually show up through a different path. And... She's at first not concerned, but like curious about it. And finally, you know, a figure of authority emerges from, from the castle and she realizes, oh, this person who just arrived, I should have recognized him. It's, it's the king. And then the king is essentially reaching out for her. Okay, so what did you think of the opening pages? Are they doing the heavy lifting? I will try to be brief. <laughs> 
Please note that our Kofi subscribers will be able to see lots and lots of notes because this is so good that once again, when something's really good, I can actually go in and suggest a whole bunch of things. But there is a little bit of info dumping in the dialogue at first. It goes away later, which makes me think that the author is just really anxious to establish a few things and you don't need it. It's things like two years is a long time to go without seeing your family. That's what her friends tells her. She knows it's been two years. They all know it's been two years. They hang out every day. Like they wouldn't say this, right? So it's a little on the info dumpy side and you just don't need that. Trust that your reader's going to get it. The reader also doesn't have to know the exact time period if it's not super necessary. And if they do, narration can do that heavy lifting. There was a whole bunch of lines that I kept highlighting to say, this is really, really awesome. I thought that this was so good. And we talk all the time about curiosity seeds on the podcast. And I wanted to read a really, really awesome curiosity seed. So she's talking to her friend and she's thinking that living away from her family makes her really homesick. But Papa believes I'm safest here, far from Ashenhall Palace, where the other bride marked live and train. And then there's a line that reads, fewer people, less chance of someone finding out. That's it. So that's a really effective curiosity seed. It's tucked into more context. It's not just, you know, isolated and coming out of the blue. And it made me really curious. I was like, finding out about what? And probably because of the query letter, we have some sense. It's her father's identity. The fact that her, she's been kept hide, hidden from her father. Papa's probably not her biological father. But anyway, we talk all the time about we need curiosity seeds. We need curiosity seeds. So I just wanted to say you added a really awesome one. And I actually wanted to give you an idea of another one you could add. So we have a protagonist thinking to herself and but not telling her friends, turning 21 and being old enough to be sold is not reason for celebration. This actually sucks, which is great because she's an outsider. She is different from everyone else in her group. Her friends, her friends are going, oh yeah, this is awesome. We're so happy to be here. We're so lucky. And she is the person who is the outlier. This is an excellent setup for your story because you want your protagonist to be an outsider in some way. It's a very effective way of us connecting with character. And it's a very effective way of us thinking, oh, okay, that person is different. And so I get to know what they're thinking and no one else knows. However, I would love to see more. For example, if she is someone who is different from all the other girls, right? All the other girls think, think it's so awesome to be bride marked and turn 21 and get married. And she doesn't. That is because at some point in her life, something set a different expectation in her. Maybe it was a grandmother who raised her and told her that it wasn't going to happen to her, that she wouldn't allow it to happen. Maybe it was parents who told her that, I don't know, right? Like whatever it was, let's say it was the grandmother thing. When she's thinking to herself that she is indignant to have to walk to the king because she has that thought, the emotionality is really strong. She's feeling indignant. She could have a line that reads, if only my grandmother hadn't. Or the line could be something else. The line could be about, you know, what would happen, like if only my father hadn't lost all his money or if only, if only whatever. But that would make us think, oh, okay, there was something in her situation that made it so that her expectations had to change. And so she's in this, she's in the situation now, but she hadn't expected to be. And that would elevate her character. That's a curiosity seed that would further character. And again, it's not including backstory. It's one line. We're talking about a few words, but it would make me even more curious. So I think that if you add that, what's really amazing is going to be even more amazing. Wonderful, Cece. Yeah, we're all about elevating the work, guys. This is what we do on this podcast. Right. So before we go to Sarah's query, we're going to focus some questions about social media. So Sarah's been teaching PR, branding and social media workshops across the country for over a decade. So Sarah, what's the number one mistake you see authors making? The number one mistake that I see authors making is not doing it, followed closely by avoiding doing it. <laughs> 
followed closely by selling without serving. I really love that statement, selling without serving, because I think this really ties into what we say on the podcast a lot of the time about being a good literary citizen. So break down for me what you interpret by selling rather than serving. So as an author, we all want to sell a book, right? Like that's why we're here. That's why we wrote the book. That's why we sold the book. That's why we ran the marathon to get to the publishing finish line. But as a reader, you're not logging on to be sold to. If you boil down the reasons that you follow any account that you follow, it will fall into the buckets of, I follow them to be inspired, I follow them to be entertained, or I follow them to be educated. So that's why you are following people as as a user of social media. So when you put yourself in the author seat, you need to be tailoring your content to one of those big buckets, entertaining, inspiring, or educating people. Amazing. Okay, so now what do you suggest for people who say it feels icky, salesy, or self-promotional? A lot of authors are like, I'm just supposed to write the book. That's what I am. I'm a writer. Why do I have to do all of this stuff? It doesn't feel great doing it. So what's your response to that? Number one, I feel you. I hear you. I understand what you're talking about. Most writers are introverts and we're not natural salespeople and we're not usually narcissists. So of course it feels icky, but it feels icky because you are selling or you feel that you should be selling. So you you're, you know, you feel like you're out there with the, with the wavy flag and the inflatable noodle person <laughs> saying, buy my book, buy my book. And that's why I'm inviting people to shift their mindset to serving. Because if you think to yourself, I am helping readers to fill in your unique competitive marketplace differentiator of what you're doing different from every other person out there, and you are educating, inspiring, uplifting, entertaining, if you are serving, it won't feel icky because you are there with an open heart and an open mind to help others. And that's why it won't feel icky. So if it, they when they when they tell me that it feels icky, I invite them to switch from a sales mindset to a service mindset. I love that. Yeah. Nothing annoys me more on social media when I see a DM and I open it, it's somebody who sent me a link to buy their book. It's like, it's not even, hi, Bianca, how are you? It's just, here's my book, have me on the podcast, or here's my book, buy my book and tell people about my book. And that is icky. That is super freaking icky. But everything else Sarah is saying is not icky. Right, we've got more questions for Sarah about social media, but for now, we're going to go to her query. Will you read it for us, please, Sarah? Okay, so here we go. Dear Carly Waters, I met with you at the Killer Nashville Conference last summer. Even though I didn't think my supernatural horror story was right for you, being a big fan of yours and the podcast, I wanted your opinion on my first two pages. What a thrill for me when you liked it. Through the conference, I connected with a couple other agents who expressed interest, but those contacts have fizzled, leaving me to question my material and how I am presenting it. I would truly appreciate your feedback on my query and opening pages. I am looking for representation for Lake Brightside, a supernatural horror story complete at 100,000 words. This is a standalone book and a planned trilogy and is similar in tone to the writing of Edgar Cantaro and will attract fans of Stranger Things. Nick Cooper needs a fresh start. During Nick's freshman year of high school in 1977, his parents divorced, the family business went bankrupt, and his older sister Katie got pregnant. Nick became an outsider in his hometown. When his mother moves him and Katie to Lake Brightside, a booming middle-class development in Florida, Nick is all for it. On the surface, Lake Brightside seems perfect, but at the bottom, things are much different. 
Nick's first night in their new home, he dreams he watches a kid get drowned by a monster. The next day, Nick goes to the lake where a scuba diver is searching for a missing kid. Nick sees a picture of the kid and realizes it's the kid he dreamed about. Nick's world is turned upside down. How could he dream about someone he's never seen? The disturbing dreams continue. Every night in his sleep, Nick is tormented by a decrepit woman and a young girl who seem to want something from him. At Lake Brightside High School, he begins to sleepwalk in his classes, at times hobbling and chittering like the woman in his dreams. This draws the ridicule of his classmates, and Nick questions his own sanity. He agrees to swim across the lake at night on a dare, a dare no one at the school would take. More than one kid has gone missing in the lake's dark but short history. Nick sees it as the only way to gain the respect he craves. During his swim, Nick is dragged underwater by the monster. He barely escapes, but Nick finds himself in the thing's crosshairs. He is forced to fight for his life with only his nerdy friend, David Pixley, to help. Their one hope rests in uncovering the secret of what happened 20 years ago when the lake was born, when a massive sinkhole swallowed the home of Gifford Barnes, Lake Brightside's unscrupulous developer. It killed Gifford's mother and father and trapped a malignant spirit at the bottom of what would soon become Lake Brightside. My debut novel, Running to Graceland, won the independent book publisher's gold medal in popular fiction in 2019. I have published fiction in Close to the Bone, Flash Fiction Magazine, Vermont Magazine, and a young adult short story anthology published by Simon & Schuster, Soul Searching, 2002. I have an MFA in creative writing from Florida International University. I am currently a book reviewer for the New York Journal of Books and teach fiction writing at the Carol Wood Cultural Center in Tampa, Florida. Thanks for your consideration. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Awesome, Sarah. Thank you. Firstly, I feel like Sarah should be on our show to read all of our query letters because she makes them come to life like an audiobook narrator. Secondly, for the author here, before we actually hand over to Sarah for critique, when Sarah read this aloud, what jumped at me was the repetition of the kid, the kid, the kid, the kid. So when you are writing your narrative stuff, when you're writing your work in progress, when you're writing your query letter, read something aloud because that is when these words jump out at you. And that's when you can figure out how to rearrange your sentence so that you either don't repeat the kid so much or you use a synonym like child or whatever. So that's just something to keep in mind. Sarah, do you have a word count for us on that? That sounded quite long. Yes, the word count is 1,186 words. Wow. All right. So what was your take on the query letter? So first of all, Bianca, I had the exact same thought. So for me, I read my work four ways. First on the screen, then aloud, then I read it printed out, then I read it on the Kindle. I email the PDF to myself and I read it on the Kindle. So when you read your work aloud and when you read it in different ways, on the paper, on the screen on the Kindle, different things leap out to you. And so my first thought was, wow, there's a lot of echoes of the of the word, the kid, the kid, the kid. So I totally agree with you. And I invite everyone to try reading your work in different ways. Okay, let's jump in. So first of all, the thing that leapt out to me the first, in the very first place was when the person is saying, dear Carly Waters, I met with you at the killer Nashville conference last summer, even though I didn't think my supernatural horror was right for you. Okay. So first of all, the protagonist is under 18. So therefore, this is technically YA supernatural horror. So I think it's important that in the next paragraph, he says, I am looking for representation for like Bright Side, a, story, a, horror, a supernatural horror story completed 100,000 words. So 100,000 words is long for a book. It is long for a debut and it is really long for YA. So this is also giving me the sense that maybe this person isn't aware of you know, the genre or sort of norms or expectations for books, debut books, and YA. Then in the third paragraph, he says, Nick Cooper needs a fresh start. During Nick's freshman year of high school, his parents divorced, his family business went bankrupt, his sister Katie got pregnant. So this hooks me. It is tight, it is devastating, and I immediately feel the desperation of Nick Cooper. But he says that Nick is a freshman of high, in high school. So that tells me Nick is 14. So first of all, this is definitely YA. But then as I kept reading, I was wondering, is this the voice of an actual 14-year-old? Because the way that it's written and the, and the confidence and sort of swagger of the character actually makes me feel like he's more of a senior. He's, he's swaggering. I mean, maybe he's just a very mature 14-year-old, but I don't know any 14-year-olds like that. It feels more like a 17, 18-year-old character. All right, next paragraph. When his mother moves him and Katie to Lake Brightside, a booming middle-class development in Florida. I'm wondering, does it matter in Florida? Also, I don't know where Nick is from. Later in the first five pages, I learned that it's that it's Vermont, but I would take this out of the query letter. Nobody cares that it's in Florida unless it somehow becomes very relevant that it is in Florida, and I didn't see that in the first five pages. On the Nick is all for it. On the service, Lake Brightside seems perfect, but at the bottom, things are different. 
First of all, I just want to say I loved that sentence. I liked the contrast and pun of surface and bottom about the lake and then about the story. I thought it was very cool and clever. To Bianca's point, we hear the word echoes of the kid, the kid, the kid a lot. So I think the author is attempting to be like, you know, a cool 1970s kind of cool cat who says the kid kind of made me want to say the kid a lot, (laughs) but it just felt like a lot of kid here. Next paragraph, the disturbing dreams continue. And I, as a reader, am forced to wonder, wait, so is it always the same kid <laughs> or is this now different people who are haunting his dreams? I'm I'm starting to get confused and I'm starting to get overwhelmed by A, the amount of details and B, the fact that the details aren't stacking up in a way that is intuitive for my particular human brain to understand. Now, I took the liberty of, of distilling this down to one paragraph. This is not polished, but here's how I would write it. Nick needs a fresh start. His mom moved them to Lake Brightside, where things are anything but bright. 20 years ago, this man-made lake was built on bad blood. When an unscrupulous developer did the town wrong, his parents died in the tragedy, and Gifford's evil greed took physical form in a tentacled monster that lives at the bottom and feasts on dead teens. When the spirit senses its next victim, it sends its handmaidens in the form of an old, decrepit woman and young girl to haunt their dreams until the victims, doubting their sanity, throw themselves into a watery grave and become the monster's next meal. Awesome, Sarah. Wow. Yeah, that that really helped crystallize that. A lot. So, so for this author, there's you know just a lot to be taken out, a lot to be crystallized. It's synopsisy language, which we definitely want to avoid at at this point. All right, Sarah. So, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages? So, I was pleasantly delighted and surprised to see that the pages themselves are so great. They are focused, they are funny, they are relatable, they're charming. You get a sense of Nick's swagger, again, feeling more like a very confident 17 or 18-year-old, not a a 14-year-old to me. But I like this kid. I would spend time in the pages with this kid. So first of all, I just wanted to say that and to give the author so many props for that because what this tells me is that this person is a good writer. They're just not a good marketer. And that's okay because authors should be good writers and most authors aren't good marketers. So I was prepared for the pages to be bogged down in details and sort of rambling and confusing me a little bit with extra added characters. That was not the case. These five pages are great. So first of all, I just wanted to say props to props to the author and great job. I will say that the first three pages of these five pages were in Nick's dream, where which he references in the query letter, where he sees this unknown kid. And the dream is very, very well written. And the, it's very visual. And the tentacled mo- monster throws his tentacles around the kid's leg and drags him down. And the kid is pounding on the glass of the tank, let me out, let me out, and, and is being drowned and killed in front of a uh, you know, a crowd of spectators who are watching, thinking as part of the show. And it was not only well-written, it was compelling. I was in for it. I was there for it. The one thing I will say is that my best friend, Amy, always says, nobody wants to hear about someone else's dream, which is kind of devastating to me. Who wants Amy to listen to all of my dreams? <laughs> but Amy always says, I, I want to, she's like, I'm going to pound my, my head on this table if you keep telling me about your dream. So I will say that It was a very well-written fight scene between this kid and the monster. However, because it was only a dream, it did, or maybe just because it was a very long fight scene, I would like to see it a little more condensed. But it, but the, but the imagery and the visual nature of it, and the the energy of it, and the word choice, beautiful word choice, is really, really well done. 
I thought. Awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much. And now I want to be best friends with Amy because Amy and I are very much on the same page. Right. So those of you who are Kofi subscribers will see all of these written critiques and feedback on our Kofi platform. Before we move to Carly's query, I just want to ask Sarah another two questions about social media. So for our listeners who are barely on social media or, or aren't on social media at all, where should someone start? Because it can be really overwhelming. I always say start where you are least intimidated and most comfortable. So you don't have to be everywhere doing everything the most on every platform. I would invite everyone to reserve their handle on every platform, even if you know you're not going to use TikTok or you're not going to use Twitter. Reserve your handle because let me tell you something. As a interviewer myself, it is the absolute worst when I go to tag someone and they're not on there. And I feel like I'm giving you this beautiful gift of my work, of my review, of interviewing you for free. And I can't even tag you. This sucks. So I would say reserve your handle and please, please make it intuitive, which is your name. If your name is taken because your name is common, Susie Smith, you can level up as the cool kids say, and you can be at author Susie Smith or Susie Smith author or real Susie Smith or writer Susie Smith, something intuitive, but make sure it's there. Number Two, get on the platform you feel comfortable with. Twitter's all about quippy, cool. You don't have there's not it's not about the pictures. It's about breaking news, hanging out with other writers, nerding out, funny gifts. If that's you, get on over there. If you love videos and movie trailers, I always said I'll be a movie trailer maker if I wasn't a writer, get over on TikTok. And you can think of those videos as as little mini movie trailers. If you love photos as much as I do, Instagram is for you. Also, Instagram has the highest conversion for, to, to in-person events, sales. 30% of Instagram users have bought something off of Instagram only because they've seen it on Instagram. That's the kind of conversion that I am interested in. That If you like to hang out with friends and have a little bit of everything, Facebook is for you. So see which Every single platform has a totally different vibe. See which one you vibe with, join, get on over there and, and dive in. Wonderful. Thank you. And then for our listeners who are on social media, but they're looking to take it to the next level, what's one thing that they can do to do that? So to level up, you want to start thinking of yourself as an author brand. So the number one thing that I tell people in my, in my, in my workshops is, this is not my personal account. Say it with me. This is not my personal account. I don't want to see pictures of your grandkids, no matter how freaking cute they are, unless you're writing a book about grandkids or you have one out of every 10 posts of, hey, I'm taking a break from writing. Here's me with my grandkids. You know, it's okay to mix in a little bit of personal so that you're not just a business robot, but it shouldn't be 99% personal because again, this is not your personal account. Look at what who is doing it well and do, do it like them. Take the time to get the picture right. Take the time to get the lighting right. Don't make it muddy, dark, blurred, you know, 10 feet of sky and you're cut off at the knees. No, frame it. Take the time to reshoot it. It takes time and energy to get things right and that is an investment well spent. Create your tweets with care. Think about, does this add value? Who am I talking to? Am I adding value? Am I serving? How can I help people? What value can I add? Don't just be out there posting mindlessly. Think about who you are. Think about who you want to be. Think about where you are now and where you want to go. And then think about the steps to get there. Wonderful, Sarah. Thank you. And my advice is if you don't have grandchildren, especially don't post a picture saying this is me with my grandchildren because that would be super freaking creepy. Okay, right. Now we're going to Carly. Carly, will you read us your query letter? 
Bianca, you're full of great quips today. I'm very much enjoying this. And Sarah, please come on the podcast anytime. You are so animated and I wish everybody could, you know, watch this as a YouTube video because I'm just loving all of your traumatic hand actions. Okay, my turn. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for all you do for the writing community. My Thursday morning run sessions just wouldn't be the same if they didn't start it with a wonderful sound of those clacking keys and all your helpful advice. Carly, I'm directing my query towards you as I feel my manuscript would best fit with your tastes. I'm seeking representation for Our Song, an upmarket women's fiction novel complete at 70,000 words. It will appeal to fans of the alternate reality storyline of C.J. Connolly's The Love of My Other Life and the sapphic romance of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And since the premise of the story is so rooted in the power of music, Adele's Easy On Me is this story's song comp. Ryder Anderson has the life she's supposed to want. Good job. Awesome best friend. Loving fiance. Everything is going according to plan until she hears a song that reminds her of a past love. And rather than just thinking of him, she's pulled into a world where she is actually still with the ex that she left over five years ago. Then another song transport her to another life. For every memory-linked song, Ryder is thrown into a new world where she is still with the man she left years ago. In each world, she struggles to understand the realities of her past, searches for her missing best friend, who she hopes will provide some guidance, and desperately tries to figure out the song that will get her back to her own reality and the person she loves. Through this journey, Ryder comes to discover her true self and what and who she really wants. Maybe the life she needs isn't actually the life she thought she was supposed to have. I earned a BA in English from Colorado College and an MFA from the University of Melbourne. I currently serve as a senior writer and editor for the communication and marketing department at Colorado College, as well as being an author accelerator certified book coach. I was inspired to write the story during my own journey to understand my sexuality coming out as queer after getting married and having two kids. My first novel, The Burden of a Daughter, was published in 2018. Please find below my first five pages. May I send you the rest of my manuscript? Thank you for your time and consideration. Best, Megan Clancy. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what's our word count there and what's your take on that? All right, we're clocking in at 4.07. So this clocked in at 4.07, but it didn't feel like a 4.07 to me. I don't know. This felt like a 3.50. Um, so I think I think we're kind of in, we're in the right ballpark. So, so I think that works. Okay, so I want to start just by talking about the concept as a whole, right? Like I think we can all see this as a very high concept type of book, which I think is great. So I'm a little bit confused, I don't know, slash concerned. And I can talk about why we're, we're using CJ Connolly's The Love of My Other Life as a comp because I just think we have, and I, again, I don't want this to sound bad, but there are better selling comps in this category. And this is no, this is not meant to, to sound bad, even though I feel like as I'm saying it, it is sounding bad. But when we are talking about comps, we have to be using titles that are moving some copies, right? And so I just felt like, you know, the versions of us, the light we lost, Midnight Library, like these are the types of comps I would be using. So, you know, again, I didn't actually look up the sales figures for, for this title, but just kind of based on a little bit of noodling around, you know, Goodreads and looking at ratings and rankings and, and that type of thing, I got a pretty good sense potentially that... I don't, this just, I don't know. I think this probably sold well. I just don't know if this sold great in, in a way that I think this concept and this high concept hook has the potential to kind of stand out a little bit more. Because I didn't know this book. I didn't know the, the love of my other life. And again, no shade to this book. I really want to pick up this book now because I think this sounds like a great book. I, I just feel like I have heard of other titles such as The Versions of Us, The Light We Lost, Midnight Library as potential comps. And I know you used TJR's Seven Husbands, but she wrote maybe in Another Life, which is again, another comp where 
two plots diverge. So again, if you want to use another TJR comp, potentially instead of seven husbands, maybe in another life could be could be a comp here. So that's my feelings on that. Okay, so our body paragraph here. I really struggle with body paragraphs open with the like, this person has a beautiful life and it's perfect until blank or everything's going so great until blank. Honestly, I would just start with when writer Anderson hears a song that reminds her of her past love and then like just build into that. I don't need this. She, you know, the life she's supposed to want. Good job. Awesome. Best friend. Like I I know that a book is going to happen at a point in a character's life where their life goes off course. And so the fact that you're telling me that, I don't know. Again, I I don't feel like this is a super long query letter, but I think we could save some word count there because it is coming in at over 400 words. So, so I would really just, I would start it there. I really, I know I made another note to myself, which Kofi, Kofi subscribers can see, which is like, this really does feel like Midnight Library to me because it's like another song transports her to another life, right? And it's like, again, all of these things that that take us off course of our lives. This query is very focused on romance and love. And so I'm just wondering, is there anything else going on in her life? Is it like work or family? Because it kind of seems a little bit more romance elemented where I feel like it could be a little bit more universal if we were potentially to kind of bring in some other elements. The last thing I want to focus on is the lesbian element, right? So we say there's a sapphic romance comp, like that's what you're drawing from Seven Husbands. And I'm assuming I'm supposed to infer when you say tries to figure out the song that will get her back to her own reality and the person she loves I'm supposed to infer that that's a woman instead of a man I'm doing a lot of inferring there <laughs> you know like do we, why don't we just say woman like I, I I don't know I guess I'm wondering why if you're so you're not talking about the queer elements of it and I'm supposed to infer it then why am I doing so much inferring because I just again I, I think we could just say it I think that would be cool I would love that. I would just love to know that. And I think that's awesome. Okay. So I think those are my main notes. And I love the personal story that you mentioned, you know, inspired to write this story during your own journey to understand your sexuality. I love that. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you, Carly. Okay. What was in those opening pages? Okay. Our main character is in a car. They are, we find out that they are in an Uber leaving work on their way home. They're in traffic. They're in San Francisco and they're on the phone with their assistant talking about a presentation and a kind of a big work thing that they're trying to finish before the end of the day. And then we are, we're told many times we're in traffic, lots of traffic. And then we see a big truck, part of the construction kind of going on back right into her Uber and, and crash into their car. And that's where we start. Okay. So was that doing the heavy lifting we're expecting those opening pages to do? Did the author start in the right place? You know, I I feel like we are starting in the right place, but I want to focus on a few things. There's a lot of things that are coming off really generic to me in terms of the work and the city. So everybody's work life, obviously, you know, we're supposed to imagine our, our home lives or our whole lives, but like everybody's obsessed with their jobs. Everybody is like stressed about their work. When we're talking about a presentation or, you know, something, which, a report we're trying to do, it's not like I'm working on the report. It's like, the Brook Street report is due and I've been, you know, it's like you're so like in the minutia of your report. So the, we're talking a lot about broad strokes about like the report and the presentation. I'm like, and, and also people in their lives, work lives are usually managing many projects and many presentations. And so I don't know, I just felt like we're, we're many opportunities. We're missing a lot of options for specificity when we're talking about this presentation and the report. I also felt like San Francisco, right? Like 
this is such a specific city with a specific vibe and a specific energy, especially if it's contemporary. Like there is so much going on with like housing crisis and, you know, and the tech, you know, bubble bursting and, and so much going on where I did not know we were in San Francisco, you know, until quite late into the manuscript. And also she's in an Uber and like San Francisco is the birthplace of Uber, you know, and I just feel like there's so many opportunities to infuse space and time into the manuscript in a way that so many things were surface level and and not for the sake of me focusing on other things. Cause sometimes I feel like authors do that on purpose, right? It's like we're vague about something so that your eye and your attention is like drawn towards a certain thing. But I just felt like so many things were surfacey. It was like work was surfacey, location was surfacey. I just really didn't feel connected here. I didn't really feel like we were making a lot of personalization here. You know, she talked about being late, you know, because of this traffic. Like, what are you late for? Right? Again, everybody is obsessed with their own lives so much that there's just not this like feeling of, I don't know, we're little puppets existing in the world. It's like, again, every character, every human being is we're completely the center of our own universes. So really just want to encourage you to get really specific about this, you know, whether it's like the fog in San Francisco, the steep roads, the tech bros, like the housing crisis, like what is going on here? And what is your what's going on in your work life, right? The combination of those things. I think I would just love, love to know. There's some really good lines I wanted to point out. There was a line that said, I look more tired than I feel and I feel so tired. And I love that those were like two separate sentences punctuated perfectly. And they came after a longer sentence. So I really liked the kind of melody of that I really I really enjoyed this and then they're all, so coming back to the work thing I'm just sorry I'm just not over it so they say to the assistant they're talking it's like so the reports on my desk yeah two copies and I'm like in what world are we putting physical copies of a report on somebody's desk like we are slacking we are emailing like we are putting it in our google box you know our google drop boxes whatever technology you're using so I just if this is historical, then I would need to know that with a timestamp. Again, unless I completely missed this, um, potentially it's historical. And I'm, and again, I'm just, I'm totally out to lunch here. But these are the things that stood out to me. And and the thing, one of the reasons I noticed that this manuscript wasn't very specific is because I found one bit of specificity, and I was like, great, this is good. And the specificity was between the assistant and the boss, and they're actually friends in real life. And she says. I'll go around the corner and get us some of those burritos that you say are too messy, but secretly love and will sit on a bench and cry about it. I was obsessed with that. I'm like, that's it, right? It's like the burritos from the corner shop that you're obsessed with. Like, that's the level of specificity. That's what I really wanted for all of these pages. And that's what I would really encourage this author to focus on. Thank you, Carly. Yeah, specificity is where a story comes alive and where you make it your own as opposed to a story AI could write or that, you know, Bob down the street could write. So so really imprint yourself all over it. Think of specificity as your fingerprint on your writing. Put your damn fingerprints on every page. Okay, right. So before we finish, Sarah, we're going to ask you one last question about social media. So you're a former PR executive turned author. Who do you think is really excelling at social media? And what's the one thing everyone can do better? First of all, I just want to say I love that line about being tired. I've I cackled out loud. I've never I've never felt more seen. <laughs> Second of all, so first of all, I think Cece Lira excels at social media. She is hashtag slaying. Yes, you Cece, you. So everybody check out Cece Lira. So first of all, she has gotten nailed the balance between it is 
professional content, but she feels personal, accessible. There's a really good balance of, oh, here's these chocolate eggs I like to eat for Easter, but here's my books with hook. Here's a tip. Here's a webinar I'm doing. Here's a funny lip sync video, but I'm making it about writing, about publishing. Cece Lira nails Instagram. It's so, so well done. And that's how Cece and I first started connecting because I started liking all her content. I was like, this lady gets it. So she's amazing. On the author side of things, Karen Slaughter is is slaying Instagram. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Karen many times for my Maven series. She's such an incredible human being, such an incredible writer. And her Instagram is a really great example of how an author can do it. Again, she's got some, you know, it's mostly professional content. She's talking about her Will Trent series. You see her on set, you see her editing, but here she loves cats. Everyone who knows Karen knows she loves cats. So she does every Saturday, she does something for Catter Day. And it's always funny and charming and adorable. And, you know, she posts occasionally funny videos of herself dancing and you just love her. So those are two really great examples of of people, I think, who are just doing a great job. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thanks for this excellent advice about social media. For our listeners, look out for Broadway Butterfly coming the 1st of August. Pre-order it and definitely give that a listen and we'll link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Carly and Cece, as always, thanks for your incredible insights and we look forward to next week's episode. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.